Thank you, Ruth, and all those others who have led us in our worship and our prayers. Ruth asked you to imagine that you were in Capernaum during Jesus' time. I want you to imagine that you are in a Roman villa a few years later, sitting in the comparative cool of a Mediterranean evening. A lot of you have done that, I know. Word has come in that there's a letter from Paul, and it's going to be read out. It's interesting that they would have read the whole letter together. We never do that, do we? Well, unless it's Third John or something like did recently. What I want you to do is sit and listen while I read this morning, just as they would have done. But I'm making a big concession to a visual society. I'm going to put the words of what I'm going to read on the screen. It's a different version. It's from um, the message, Peterson's kind of amplified version. But sit, watch, listen. Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons came from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you are not being observed by those watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that We are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we're not yet quite perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me 
who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous. Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin. The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the old same barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God. But it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. So said Paul to the Galatians. So says the Lord to us this morning. Can you imagine the headlines in the local tabloid press of the day? Two leading apostles of Jesus Christ in complete and open conflict. But of course that wasn't any tabloid newspaper of the day. It had been a bit difficult to find one in Paul's day anyway. That's how John Stott describes the events recorded for us in the second half of Galatians 2. He calls this passage one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. If you'd like to follow it now in the NIV, it's Galatians 2 and it's page 1169 in the Pew Bibles. <clears throat> Verse 11 is a summary of the whole episode. And Paul introduces it by saying, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Let me briefly say something about Antioch. Because it's the first local church outside Jerusalem identified for us in the book of Acts. Antioch was a city some 350 miles north of Jerusalem. Now I suppose that's Ballycastle to Cork and then some. I heard somebody say on the radio the other day they could go from Belfast to Cork in four hours. Well, let them. <laughs> but, but in those days, how long would it have taken? 
How many miles would you walk day after day after day to, to cover the 150? Is three weeks too long or too short? Anyway, 350 miles north, and people had to walk it, or at best ride in a mule, I suppose. After the martyrdom of Stephen, the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. And some of them traveled north to Antioch and began to preach. But they didn't just preach to the Jews. They broke out of the bonds and preached to the Gentiles. And Acts 11, which tells us all of this sort of thing, it says that the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And as a result, the first real interracial cosmopolitan church outside Jerusalem was founded. Remember, the Christians in Jerusalem were Jews, all Jews. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas, son of encouragement, north to Antioch. And when Barnabas, Acts 11 again, saw the evidence of the grace of God that's in the Gentiles, he was delighted. And he went round the coast to Tarsus, fairly near, not as nearly as far away as Jerusalem, because Saul was there, Saul of Tarsus. He'd been packed off home from Jerusalem by the disciples, the Christians there, because the, the Jews in Jerusalem had threatened to kill him. So he wasn't all that far away. And Paul helped Barnabas to teach the great number of converts, the Gentiles. And one more thing about Antioch. Remember, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I'm going to divide this passage into three simple sections. The first three verses, what Peter did. The next three verses, how Paul reacted. And the last five verses, what we can learn from all of this. So, let's begin at the beginning. What Peter did. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. Now, Eating with a Gentile would be nothing new to Peter. Let me remind you of his background. You, you, you will remember him very well, I'm sure. During Jesus' time, Peter had been given by Jesus the keys of the kingdom. And through his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he had opened the door of the kingdom to the Jews. And 3,000 Jews were saved that day. We know about that from Acts chapter 2. And shortly afterwards... He was summoned by God through a vision to go to Caesarea to, to preach to Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, and a whole house full of Jews. Sorry, of Gentiles, not Jews. He, he preached to them all about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And I quote from um, Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, telling him about Jesus, death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. You see, God had used Peter. 
to open the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles. When Peter got back to Jerusalem, he was bitterly criticized by the circumcised believers, the Jews there. And we're told in Acts 11, they said to him, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with the people there. But Peter wasn't backing down. He told them the whole story. So we have Acts 10 repeated in Acts 11. It's all there in detail. And they ended up by saying, So, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And we're told in Acts 11:18, When they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Always surprises me that, you know, Isaiah and other major prophets in the Old Testament could talk about what God was going to do with the Gentiles. But the Jews of that time had shut their minds to all of that. Acts 13 tells us that Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch, an outward-looking, missionary-minded church, to go to Asia Minor, to go to Galatia, on what we now call Paul's missionary, first missionary journey. And a great many people, including many Gentiles, indeed more Gentiles than Jews, had believed, had become Christians, And when their journey was complete, they returned to Antioch and Acts 14 tells us that they stayed there a long time with the disciples in Antioch. And seemingly, during that time, Peter came for what must have been a protracted stay. Now, clearly they had excellent fellowship with the believers in Antioch. The majority of whom, remember, were probably from a Gentile background. But when Peter was in Antioch, a group of men from James, probably from Jerusalem, presumably, arrived. They were believers in Jesus Christ, but they must have belonged to a group of Pharisees who maintained that, and I'm quoting here from Acts 15, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. But when these men arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. I wonder why he was afraid. The plain answer is we don't know. But of course that hasn't stopped commentators from, uh, from speculating. Let me give you just one example, and most of them will know John Piper as a a preacher and a writer. And I'm going to quote from what Piper wrote about this. Why was he afraid? Well, perhaps these men were capable of violence. Do you buy that? Or, Or perhaps Peter fears he may not be able to give a good enough rationale for his freedom and will look foolish. Or perhaps he fears falling into disfavor among the conservatives in Jerusalem and losing his prestigious standing as a leader. You take your choice. 
we're not told why he feared. But he did. And in a moment of weakness, he cut off fellowship with his Gentile brothers and sisters in not eating with them. And when he did that as a leader, the other Jews followed. And so did Barnabas. I simply agree with another commentator, Hendrickson, who, who, who says this. And I wonder if you agree with this. Instability and momentary fear constituted the weak strain in Peter's character. He had acted like this before. That was Peter. Verse 13. The result. Even Barnabas, son of encouragement, Paul's missionary colleague, had eaten with Gentiles all through that missionary journey. We may not know why Peter was afraid, but Paul's quite sure what was behind Peter's beginning to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Twice in verse 13, he says, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The, the Greek word for play acting. Believing one thing and doing another is how we describe it today. And the real result, harmony and division. Now, let's go on to look at how Paul reacted. Can you picture the scene? The whole group has been talking all afternoon about whatever. And then someone says, I think we should break up and have something to eat. Or a maid comes in and announces, evening meal's ready. Or maybe it was the, the love feast before the Lord's table. Peter looks across at the visitors from Jerusalem and he slowly gets up and follows them towards the door and Barnabas does the same. Before they reach the door, Paul suddenly jumps up, points an accusing finger at Peter. You can feel the tension in the air. And he says, look, and I'm quoting here from the message we've just read, if you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right have you to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jewish cronies? Well, there's uh, obviously what Peterson thinks about why he was afraid. Why did Paul react so sharply and publicly? What was at stake here? Well, he tells us in 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Let me put it like this. David, a fortnight ago, defined the gospel for us using chapter 1 and verse 4. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us according to God's will. That's the gospel. And our actions must show that that's what we believe. Now by his actions, Peter was deviating from that truth of the gospel. He wasn't in line with the truth of the gospel. He was adding well, at least he was adding eating habits, but the people from Jerusalem were probably adding a need for circumcision as well. 
And Paul won't tolerate any deviation from the truth of the gospel. From anything that is Jesus plus. By his actions, Peter was implying, not saying, that he wasn't even aware of it, but Paul was. He was implying that to be saved, you had to do more than just trust in Jesus Christ. You, you needed to adhere to, to Jewish ceremonial law. What is at stake here, of course, is the truth of justification. Look at the next couple of verses, 15 and 16. Three times Paul uses the word justified. And in fact, he uses it for a fourth time in verse 17. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So, what's justification? Now, we spent a recent Sunday evening looking at this, but let me go through it very, very quickly. The best definition of justification I know is from the Shorter Catechism. Now, it may have been written way back in the 17th century, but I don't think it's been bettered. There it is. Do you know it? Do you know it by heart? I, as a Baptist in the 1900s, learned this in Sunday school. Justification is an act of God's free grace. He didn't have to do it. He didn't need to do it. We didn't deserve it, but he did it. That's grace. Wherein he pardons all our sins. My sins are forgiven. But more than that, he accepts us as righteous in his sight. How could God accept a sinner as righteous? Isn't that turning justice upside down? But the next line, only for the righteousness of Christ. I have no righteousness. But Christ has righteousness. And he took that to the cross for me and died for me. The old theological term, still in the AV of course, is imputed, credited, like, like a, a bank account, credited to my account, credited to us, the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. That's it. Or as the well-known saying sums it up, we sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what Paul is at pains to point out is that there is no Jesus plus. Let's go back to verse 16. Three times, he says, justified. And look on the screen. Three times, he says, not by observing the law. We know that the man is not justified by observing the law. Justified not by observing the law, but because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Could that be clearer? Three times. But let me put it in the positive side. By faith in Jesus Christ, justified. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Three times he says, by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a beautifully 
crafted verse. Well, it wasn't a verse in his day, but it's been turned into a verse now. Three times justified. Three times not by observing the law. Three times by faith in Jesus Christ. What can we learn? Most commentators call verses 17 to 19 somewhat obscure. Well, I'll comment on each one fairly quickly. NIV says, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Of course we're all sinners. Those who, who, who tried to please God by trying to keep the law were still sinners. That's why Christ died for us. It's clear here that Paul wants to be sure that no one can point a finger at him and say, your way of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in other words, without any effort to keep the law, without any human part to it, your way of justification means that sinners are free to go on justing, aren't Sinners are free to go on sinning, aren't they? That, in essence, means that Christ promotes sin. And Paul's retort is, absolutely not. Now, if you want a full commentary of that, go to, go to Romans 6, where Paul says, he's been talking about grace. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? The more sin, the more grace. He says, by no means. And those words, by no means, are exactly the same as is here. Absolutely not. I'm not sure why the NIV translators made it by no means in Romans. And absolutely not. I like absolutely not. But then, if you ever hear me talking, I'll be saying, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely not. And if you go to the middle of uh, Romans 6, where Paul's been talking about the law, he says, shall we go on sinning because we're not under the law, but under grace? And again he says, by no means. The AV is quite consistent in its translation of that uh, term. They say, God forbid. But of course, in the original, there's no word for God there. It's not forbid. In the original Greek, it simply says, may it not be. But that doesn't translate very dramatically into English. Absolutely not. Christ is not a promoter of sin. We're all sinners. Verse 18 is very cryptic. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. In other words, if I again begin to rely on law-keeping as an essential for salvation, all I'm doing is to demonstrate that I'm a lawbreaker because I can't keep the law. I'll simply fail. Note in passing, Paul uses the word I here. If I rebuild, what I destroyed. I prove it. I'm a lawbreaker. He'd been very gracious, I think. It was Peter who was building up the old structure again of, of law-keeping, of eating separately. This fits Peter perfectly. Well, verse 19. bit hard to understand. For through the law I died to the law. What does that mean? So that I might live for God. Well, again, Peterson, in his message, I think, gives his own gloss to it. It's really a paraphrase, but I like it. Here's what Peterson says. 
What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God. Didn't work. So I quit being a lawman. I died to the law. I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man, so that I might live for God. And now, in verse 20, Paul begins to make clear why he knows that justified sinners are not free to continue sinning. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? It's a statement of fact about our standing before God. Because we belong to Christ, we were included in his dying, his crucifixion. So that our sins have been forgiven. Our sinful past has been blotted out. And now Christ lives in me. Christ living in me by the the presence of his Holy Spirit gives me new life. A new worldview. A new set of values. A different set of attitudes. It isn't that I cannot sin. It isn't that I don't sin. But rather through his power in me. I don't have to. I don't want to. I want to please him. I'm different. Is that how you see it? And he ends the chapter with a very strong statement. Again, I'm going to the message. Isn't it clear to you that to to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God. I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. But of course, Christ did not die unnecessarily. He died in my place. He died in your place. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. So there are two wonderful truths. For us to take away here this morning and rejoice in. I've been justified. Forgiven. Accepted as righteous. Given a new standing. He did it all. I can do nothing to save myself. That's God's grace. And secondly, I have a new life. Christ lives in me. And I have life to the full. What a wonderful God we have.